Good evening, folks. Wow, there's, there are so many of you already. It's, it's astonishing, and it's really great. Um, welcome to LA Opera, and welcome to Akhenaten. Um, I'm Matthew O'Coin, uh, the conductor of this evening's performance, and also LA Opera's new uh, artist-in-residence. And uh, really what I want to do with you this evening is to uh, remove expectations. <laughs> Not to lower standards, but to remove specific expectations, because I think that is how the music of Philip Glass operates. Um, I'd like to begin this evening's introduction with, a, with an anecdote. When I was in college, I would, uh, to make pocket money, I would occasionally give talks about music to a retirement home um, near Boston. And uh, one of the talks I gave was actually in advance of the Metropolitan Opera's HD screening of Glass's Satyagraha. Also, incidentally, uh, in a production by Phelan McDermott, director of this evening's uh, Akhenaten. Uh, Satyagraha, like Akhenaten, is uh, one of Glass's three so-called portrait operas of great uh, revolutionary historical figures. The first was Einstein on the beach. Don't need to explain who the figure is there. Uh, the second uh, is Satyagraha, uh, whose central figure is Gandhi, and the third is Akhenaten. And I remember, and, and thank goodness you don't look like you're having anything like the same reaction, I have never faced a crankier audience <laughs> than this group of people who, you know, they, they, they went to every HD screening, so they, well, they were going to go to this one, but they weren't happy about it. And they were, you know, it's a fraud, it's a scam, it's just C major over and over again. What is, what is this? <laughs> and they were really, you know, kind of aggressive about it. And I just said, gosh, guys, you're behaving an awful lot like um, the British occupiers of India. <laughs> and the music seems to be uh, nonviolently resisting you. And that is, I think, how Philip Glass's music operates. It does not assault you. It's, it, it does not uh, make a show of its complexities. In fact, quite the contrary, it seems at times to be doing nothing. But in so doing, it is putting you, if you're willing to go there, into a state of such openness and receptiveness that when there's a change, even if it's a Schubertian change of one note within a harmony, it feels seismic. So uh, these few years later, I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, uh, engaging with, with Akhenaten. Uh, who here is familiar with the historical figure Akhenaten? Okay, a fair amount of you are, but ju just for, uh, for, for a quick primer, um, Akhenaten was uh, a one-of-a-kind pharaoh in the history of ancient Egypt who, um, uh, at a certain point, uh, immediately after ascending to the throne, in fact, he decided that 
Egypt didn't need all those gods. Egypt was, of course, a polytheistic society, and Akhenaten claimed to be the son of the sun. That is, the sun that's in the sky. And that the sun is the only god, there is only one god, and it is the sun which is the source of all life. And it was an astonishingly radical thing to, to do for the society, but he was the pharaoh, so everybody had to fall in line. Um, eventually, uh, there was a revolt, he was overthrown, and his name was uh, <laughs> unremembered, disappeared, whatever the S Soviet equivalent of that term would be. Um, in ancient Egypt, it meant that whenever the the hieroglyph standing for his name appeared in a wall carving. It had to be stabbed out. Um, so his existence was literally obliterated. So naturally, it's kind of hard to get the facts straight about this guy's life, which only deepens the mystery. And it uh, provides a poetic license, so to speak, for a creator uh, like Mr. Glass to uh, invent who Akhenaten may have been. What are the rumors about Akhenaten? Well, there's very little that we know for sure, but the, the possibilities include that he was what we would today call transgender, or that he at least had an unusual um, sexual identity. There are portraits of him with breasts and, and, and with a strange, with an, with an unconventional physique for a male ruler. Um, there's also some question about whether he was a deeply irresponsible ruler. He might have been a sort of cult leader who locked himself in the palace and with his family s sat around worshiping the sun god while um, Egypt's armies were being defeated and no one, was, no one was steering the ship. So maybe that's what prompted the rebellion against him. We're not really sure. The most fascinating uh, theory of who Akhenaten was and what his influence was is also the thing that prompted uh, Mr. Glass to write this opera, and that is the notion that it was followers of Akhenaten who later founded what would become Judaism. And so uh, the monotheistic religions of the modern world might owe their origins to this revolutionary pharaoh. And this is not an idea that, that Philip Glass dreamed up single-handedly. Um, it was made m more widely known by Freud, of all people, whose book, uh, Moses and Monotheism, Eminem, um, <laughs> propounded the theory uh, that Moses uh, was a was influenced by Akhenaten, and also uh, that the Hebrew word, and I don't have any Hebrew, so I apologize in advance if I butcher it, but the word for God, Adonai, might be etymologically related to Aten, Adonai, Aten. Um, Aten is the name of the sun god in, in Akhenaten's religion. It's pretty much the same word. Um, this, in turn, influenced Velikovsky, who found similarities between the twisted family situation of Akhenaten and the story of Oedipus. Uh, and he wrote um, 
the, the book Oedipus and Akhenaten. So uh, it's out of all of these theories that we get an opera. And if you're looking for answers to any of these mysteries, I'm afraid you may have come to the wrong opera. <laughs> this is a meditation. This opera is a meditation on um, what it was that Akhenaten was doing uh, religiously and how that might be transformed into music. And I'm sure I don't need to give anyone here um, a music history lesson, but just to put the music of glass in context and maybe to draw out uh, a similarity between uh, Mr. Glass himself and Mr. Akhenaten, <laughs> let's look at what was going on musically when Philip Glass was growing up and what the trends were that first threatened to sweep him up and which he then revolted against. So we think of tonality as being the definition of home base. You know, to, to, to have a tonality is to say we know where home is, you know. You know, we all know that that chord is home base. If I went, it would just, you, you, we know that I've done something intentionally aberrant. Um, and of course, we also know that over the course of the 19th century, the notion of what tonality was was stretched to the cracking point by most famously Wagner, whose you know, harmonies don't... We don't quite know where home base is over the course of that progression or throughout much of Wagner. And then in the 20th century, um, the whole thing blew open and it became first possible and then almost law to write music without a sense of home base. And that's a topic for a whole different lecture, but uh, plenty of composers from the Austro-German world maybe felt like they couldn't honestly write music that felt stable in a world that was being torn apart and in a culture where uh, so-called civilization had led to really horrific things. It's, again, it's a whole separate topic. But Philip Glass was born into a generation of American composers who felt an intense pressure to, how to put it, the ungenerous way to say it would be to copy. Uh, the more generous way is to say to absorb um, this, uh, seriously, to absorb these cataclysmic events in music. And Philip Glass was also one of the first composers to say, you know what? That's not my experience. He wasn't saying that it wasn't a valid experience, but he did, I think, at some point say, you know what? I don't have a problem with A minor. A minor has not been made dirty to me by cultural associations. And so I wonder if there's a way that I can take these really ancient musical materials 
and see if they might behave in a different way. Uh, maybe a more stable way than the, the music that was emerging out of Europe in those years, but not stable in a conventional sense. In fact, so stable that listeners would accuse Glass of doing nothing at all. could go on, but you'll, you'll hear, <laughs> you'll hear, oh, well, thank you, thank you. Practice that one for years, uh, <laughs> right along with the Chopin etudes. Um, you'll hear that music later tonight. It is music which is willing to treat a chord, a harmony, not as something to be uh, wrestled with or torn apart or treated as, as simply part of a, of a conventional progression, but as a space that you can live in um, and that maybe reveals more properties to you the longer that you live in it. And as I was studying Akhenaten, it occurred to me that maybe there's something spiritually in common with saying, let's just live in A minor for a sec, and saying, we don't need all those gods. We just need the sun. Um, the great German poet Paul Celan wrote of losing his, uh, what he thought of as his Jewish faith to what he called many-godedness, uh, a sense of, 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 of religion being scattered in the, in the catastrophes of the 20th century. I think that it's a sort of heroic effort of glasses to, to simplify and to try and engage with the musical equivalent of sunlight and to feel the radiance of it and to see if maybe that can also nourish us. I was, uh, <laughs> I was lying awake last night um, feeling really excited for today in a kind of, almost in a kind of Christmas eve -y sense. And I, uh, after a while, I, uh, this, this poem came into my head, it's probably my favorite poem in English, but I wasn't sure at first why it had come into my head. It's, uh, it's John Donne's poem, uh, Good Friday, 1613, Riding Westward. And I realized after it had been turning over for a few minutes, that it was in my head because the poem is about the sun as God and about not being worthy to face 
the power of the sunlight. I actually, I'd like to read the poem to you because it has a lot to do with, um, with who Akhenaten is in this opera because he claims to be the son of the sun and he claims to be the only one who, who is pure enough to uh, uh, absorb that power. This is uh, John Donne's Good Friday, 1613, riding westward. Let man's soul be a sphere, and then in this, the intelligence that moves, devotion is. And as the other spheres, by being grown subject to foreign motion, lose their own, and being by others hurried every day, scarce in a year their natural form obey, pleasure or business, so our souls admit for their first mover, and our world by it. Hence is it that I am carried towards the west this day, when my soul's form bends toward the east. There I should see a sun by rising set, and by that setting endless day beget. But that Christ on this cross did rise and fall, sin had eternally benighted all, yet dare I almost be glad I do not see that spectacle of too much weight for me. Who sees God's face that is itself life must die. What a death were it then to see God die. It made his own lieutenant nature shrink. It made his footstool crack and the sun wink. Could I behold those hands which span the poles and tune all spheres at once, pierced with those holes? Could I behold that endless height which is zenith to us and our antipodes humbled below us? Or that blood which is the seat of all our souls, if not of his, made dirt of dust? Or that flesh which was worn by God for his apparel, ragged and torn? If on these things I durst not look, durst I upon his miserable mother cast mine eye, who was God's partner here, and furnished thus half of that sacrifice which ransomed us? Though these things as I ride be from, away from, mine eye, they are present yet unto my memory, for that looks towards them, and thou looks towards me, O Savior, as thou hangst upon the tree. I turn my back to thee but to receive corrections till thy mercies bid thee leave. O think me worth thine anger, punish me, burn off my rust and my deformity, restore thine image so much by thy grace that thou mayst know me, 
and I'll turn my face. So, obviously there's some Christian-specific stuff in there that is not so relevant. But in Akhenaten, uh, Akhenaten is the Jesus figure. He is the son of the son who claims it's his life's mission to spread that word on earth. And uh, a bit like the historical Jesus, he is eventually overthrown and uh, killed. And, and, try, and, and the culture tries desperately to forget him, the, the mainstream culture of that time. And what you witness in the opera is this incredible radiance, and you also witness the people of the culture not being able to deal with it. Um, there's uh, a moment at the end of that poem when Dunn says, he realizes that as he looks backwards into his memory, God is looking forwards out of history towards him. It's like he looks back, God looks forward. And the image that he has for God is the sun which is behind him because he's riding westward on Good Friday and the sun is rising. And he realizes, I can't turn around. I can't, it would blind me. I would go blind if I tried to take in that much radiance. So I think that's why the... Uh, the, the, the poem was in my head, and uh, I, I wanted to share it with you mostly to, to bring out some of the resonances of, um, of other <laughs> faiths other than the ancient Egyptian one, which maybe is not so familiar to most of us. Um, I'd like to, to speak a little bit about uh, the piece and the production. Um, the figure of Akhenaten is sung by a countertenor, um, which feels appropriate to the question of uh, whether Akhenaten was sexually unconventional or whether he embodied an unconventional gender identity because, of course, the countertenor is the descendant of the castrato. I, again, I, I apologize. I, I'm sure you guys know this completely, but in case there's anyone here who doesn't, the countertenor is the, uh, one of the very highest of male voice types. And if you think of the male voice as being a kind of uh, a car that can drive in different gears, uh, falsetto being the highest gear, um, the countertenor only drives in that gear. Or maybe it's that the countertenor is an athlete who only trains the falsetto muscle. It's a very particular Olympic sport, and that's what, uh, that's what countertenors train for. The falsetto is, of course, the, the part of the male voice that's above the register crack. Uh, it, it's the crack that um, guys have to suffer through for a couple of years during puberty. I'm going like this, being really awkward. Um, most of us settle down there. Um, even someone whose voice like mine is not especially deep, it's certainly below that shift. But if I talk like this up here, I'm using using the falsetto register, it's a little bit Julia Child-like. Um, and I can also sing like that, but you wouldn't want to listen to me for very long. Um, there are, however, singers who, who, who do extraordinarily well in this register. Interestingly, uh, they're often also capable of singing as baritones, uh, not so much as tenors. They, 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 it tends to kind of skip a, 
not a generation, it skips a level somehow, um, that if you have a, a certain potent low range, you may also have a very potent, very high uh, range. And uh, the music for Akhenaten is otherworldly. He sounds otherworldly. Anthony Rothkostanzo has a, a, a more than human quality to the voice. Um, and in this production, Arachnaten also looks otherworldly. He is completely head-shaven, body-waxed, um, and we actually witness the transformation of him almost from the moment of being born, um, kind of emerging out of an egg or out of the sun uh, into his ultimate incarnation as Pharaoh. So we witness from the nakedness through the, the many layers of robes that uh, uh, a royal personage had to wear. Uh, the other principal characters are uh, Akhenaten's wife, Nefertiti, who is considerably more famous than he is in, uh, in popular lore, sung by a mezzo-soprano, in this case, Janae Bridges, um, and uh, the, the former queen, Queen Ty, sung by LA opera favorite Stacey Tappan. Um, and we do briefly witness the, the love affair of, of Nefertiti and Akhenaten. It's almost dramatically uh, like the um, Otello Desdemona love duet, in that we see this one shining, radiant moment of untroubled union, and then it all goes to hell <laughs> in the very next scene. Uh, we witness this, 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 this courtship, this falling in love, and then we never return to that music. That music immediately becomes uh, a dream that gets shattered. Uh, some of you may have noticed also that uh, unexpectedly for an opera that is sung in ancient Egyptian, uh, briefly uh, ancient Akkadian, uh, and very briefly Hebrew, and even more briefly English, that there are no supertitles. You might ask, how are we going to figure out what is going on? And the answer is, this is not um, Rigoletto, where if you miss a plot twist, you're really, really missing out. What happens in each scene is really clear. The act of a kind of raucous funeral of the previous pharaoh. It's kind of like a New Orleans funeral. There's, you know, pounding drums and, 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 and joyous kind of celebration. Um, the coronation, the love scene, the act of destroying the images of, of the earlier gods. These are pretty grand gestures, and I promise you won't miss them. So I would actually advise you to not expend excessive energy trying to understand. Just let it wash over you, give yourself over to this extraordinary time scale in which things take longer uh, than they normally do in, uh, in 2016. Um, and uh, I, I think you'll enjoy yourselves. Uh, for the last few minutes, I'd love to open the floor to whatever is on your mind. Some of you might not have heard a Philip Glass opera before, so I'd love to hear whatever uh, has piqued your interest so far. Yes? Which maestro? 
Ah, not tonight, but hopefully at some point in the run, Mr. Glass. Uh, unfortunately, he's not with us this evening, but thank you for asking. Yes? Oh gosh, you're going you're gonna to embarrass me. The, the, the question is the, the years of Akhenaten's life, his birth death years. Frankly, it has slipped my mind. It's, 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 it's in the later years of, of when Egypt was still on top of the world, so to speak. But, um, 1400 BC. Thank you. Yeah, I, that was what I was going to say. Yes. The question is whether um, Philip Glass was influenced by gamelan music from Indonesia. Um, it's, it's a good question. Uh, I think that, you know, it, was, it was the thing to do to be influenced by gamelan music from Indonesia for a, a, a couple of decades of the 20th century. Everybody who was anybody was going to Bali and learning the gamelan. Um, so I think that it's certainly there in, in Glass's music, but it's, the influence is one step removed because composers had already been going so much in the, the year, you know, Benjamin Britten even uh, tried his, his hand at it, that um, uh, Mr. Glass, I don't believe that was one of the primary non-Western influences. However, um, he is a composer with a deep reverence for, love for, knowledge of um, non-Western musical traditions, most especially Indian music. Um, after studying with Nadia Boulanger, who was the, um, uh, the toughest Western counterpoint teacher uh, in the Wild West, um, he worked closely with Ravi Shankar. And though I, I don't believe Mr. Glass performs on Indian instruments or has written specifically for those instruments much, what really crept in, and which is certainly present in this piece, is a sense of activity within a stable harmony. Indian music is not, in the Western sense, so much about harmonic progression. It's more an atmosphere is established and things happen within it. And that is something that Glass was one of the first to really experiment with using uh, orchestras. Yes? Um, so we just drove here from San Jose. I found out this was... Oh my gosh. Thank you. I should repeat a little bit. First of all, what's your name, by the way? Karen. Karen drove here from San Jose because of her love for Akhenaten, which is really exciting. Um, and the question is really, what does it feel like to, to conduct this music, um, given that it is so absorbing that you might drive off the road if you're listening to it in the car? Um, I hopefully will not drive the orchestra off the road this evening. Um, I would say, you know, I'm tempted to say that it's over in a flash but that doesn't quite feel right. It's not that time passes quickly, it's that time, 
becomes a kind of substance that you sink into. So conducting this piece feels a bit like sinking into a pool. And when I emerge, I'm not sure how much time has passed. But there is a sense that every time we finish an act in, in, in rehearsals, I have felt, oh, really? It's over? Um, so I, I, hope, I, I hope that comes across. Yes? Yes. The question is, is whether there will be particular differences between uh, my conducting and the, the conducting of the, this production's first incarnation in London earlier this year. I can't say because I actually wasn't there in London. I have listened to a bit of the, the recording, but uh, I didn't want to let it influence me too much. I, I will say, I find that in a, in a hall this big, in a hall as big as the Chandler, it helps to be very spacious and to take time um, in, in certain ways. I, I know the original recording better than I know the recording from London earlier this year, and occasionally I thought, could we, can it be even more trance-like? So that was in my mind, certainly. Time for a couple more questions. Yes. The question is whether Philip Glass is easier to conduct than other composers. Well, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's just you and me here. Um, the answer is, is no, but it's a very different kind of challenge. You know, if I'm conducting uh, Alban Berg's music, then the, the challenge is, or even some of my own music, which tends to be kind of uh, occasionally hyperactive. Um, there's a certain challenge of simply keeping the pieces uh, in the right places. And in Philip Glass's music, the biggest challenge of all is that the music looks, quote, easy. But because of that, it is all the more uh, difficult to enter into the spirit of it. Because if, y if it's your job to find just the right articulation and tone and pacing and atmosphere for a gesture that repeats, and then to not lose your concentration, even if it repeats 128 times, that's a really different kind of meditative challenge. And so, you know, the LA Opera Orchestra, they're crackerjack musicians. It's not like they have any problems getting their fingers around the notes, but our challenge in rehearsing it has been entering into the atmosphere. Yes? How has the piece evolved over time? This particular piece? Yes. How has this piece evolved over time? It was premiered in 1983. I'm not sure, actually, whether revisions were done to the score itself. Um, I, I can't say. I've tried to keep my relationship to the score very sort of innocent and direct. I, I will point out, though, that um, this piece uh, does not have violins in the orchestra. It is otherwise a relatively conventional orchestra with violas and celli and basses and winds, brass, uh, percussion, and a synthesizer. But there are no violins, and the reason for it was that when the piece was premiered in uh, Stuttgart, they were doing it in a, in a house whose pit was rather small, 
And so something had to give. And, and Mr. Glass said, well, why not violins? Who needs them? Um, which is kind of amazing. And, and so rather than what has changed, what's kind of remarkable is that that has not changed. We've never, he's never gone back to add violins because we're doing it in a house that certainly has plenty of room in the pit. Um, so yeah, it's a philosophy of non-violins. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's terrible, it's awful, it's awful. Awful. Okay, I think there's time for one more. Yes. The question is, uh, because a, a, a singer in, in the production pointed out that to sing Philip Glass, you have to not only know how to sing, but you have to know how to count. And the question is, am I also sitting in the pit just counting? It, yes and no. I mean, no more than I'm counting in, uh, in Mozart, um, because after a while, the number of repeats comes to feel really right. I have a friend who is a classical saxophonist who, uh, just for fun, was reading through some glass etudes alone uh, in, 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 his, in his apartment once, and he was getting a little bit tired physically, so he decided, I'm going to skip some of the repeats just to go on to the next section. And he said it felt horrible. It was like a physical pain because the number of repeats is so thought through and it's so right that if you start skipping any of them, it feels totally wrong. So now that I know the piece hopefully decently well, the number of repeats happens because it should. I, th I think we've got time for one more. Yes, in the back there. This is a fantastic question. The, uh, thank you, thank you. The question is, uh, because I said that this piece is really a meditation, and the question is, is there a kind of technique, maybe breathing or something, uh, for you as audience members to engage with the piece? And I don't think there's room in the Chandler seats to be doing yoga, uh, <laughs> uh, which I think Philip Glass probably would have been doing to prepare himself for writing the piece, but we don't really have room for it in the audience. Um, I would actually say, don't worry about it. My, I would actually say, it's, oh, it's really okay if those thoughts about work or what you had for dinner or whatever it is creep into your head because they'll also creep out. And there is, as long as you don't... There was a great Onion article recently. You guys all know The Onion, right? But, you know, woman worried she's doing a bad job enjoying massage. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> worrying that you're doing anything wrong in the, in the process of this particular piece is a little bit like that. It's a, this is certainly a deep tissue massage that it's giving you, but it is, uh, it is that kind of physical um, caressing musical experience. So I wouldn't worry about it. Um, I think I'd better go get ready to conduct this thing. Thank you all for, for coming and for listening. Thanks.